Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, December 16th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary, asking you again to consider Commentary in your end of year giving. Commentary Inc. is a 501c3 nonprofit institution. It publishes Commentary Magazine. It releases the daily website at commentary.org and it produces this five-day-a-week podcast. We are grateful to our advertisers and vastly more grateful to our subscribers for providing us with uh, generous uh, support in the form of subscriptions and advertising revenue, but that is not enough to close our deficit or cover our costs. And we are therefore reliant upon the generosity of our readers and our listeners to do that. And so I ask you to join the band of brothers and sisters who make up the commentary family and go to www.commentary.org donate to include us in your tax deductible end of year giving. We would be immensely grateful to you for doing so. And by we, I mean, of course, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. The big news yesterday afternoon was a series of news stories by various uh, Capitol Hill reporters that the Build Back Better bill, the social infrastructure bill, the $3.5 trillion bill, the $1.75 trillion bill, or the originally $6 trillion bill that was going to be the New Deal of the 21st century, the new society of the 21st century, Joe Biden's pitch to be the new FDR, the new LBJ, is dead. Uh, It's frozen. It's frozen like Optimus Prime or whatever the Opticon is in, Decepticon is at the North Pole in the Transformers movies. It's frozen like, frozen like Ted Williams' head. Frozen like Ted Williams. That ain't coming back. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and uh, and many were the recriminations uh, instantaneously. Of course, uh, raining uh, imprecations upon the head of West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin with the invisible woman. Talk about sexism. What happened to Senator Cinema of, of Arizona and her objections to the bill? Why isn't she ever mentioned anymore? That's two, not one. Or we should actually say, of course, as we ha- have said along, the bill is rejected. It's rejected not by one senator or by two senators, simply by dint of being Democrats, but by 51 or 52 senators, by dint of the fact that the Senate is made up of 100 voting senators of whom 50 are republicans who were not going to go along with this bill so it is like jacob marley dead dead as a doornail dead 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 at least until the spring when it will be revived and then probably be dead again do i sound gleeful i don't really sound gleeful because it's too early in the morning but um i I just want to say that from August onward, when the first glimmerings of wisdom and sanity emerged on Capitol Hill, maybe in July, when the idea was you had to divide up the stuff in this bill 
that could get Republican support, i.e. actual hard infrastructure spending on bridges and tunnels and roads and trains and whatever, that you could get Republicans for. You could break that up, have a bill that's the infrastructure bill, and then have this social welfare monstrosity bill as a separate bill, and then you could get one through and then fight over the other. From that moment, when it all looked like, hey, that's a that's a good strategy. You know what? Even even Republicans got to say that's a good strategy. Joe Biden himself in a very Trumpian move, because think about Trump and Paul Ryan and the kinds of machinations that Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell would make that Trump would come in and Bigfoot and 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 announce were impossible on on border wall spending and various other things. Biden came in and said, no, 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 no. They have to be considered together. We have to hold the bill that Republicans would vote for hostage, the bill that Republicans don't want to vote for and shove it down their throats. And otherwise it shouldn't. That was the White House having laboriously allowed the Senate and probably saner voices in the White House to say, we're going to divide this up to say, no, no, they need to be considered together. Then progressives said they had to be considered together. And then we had four months or something like that of insanity as as the two Democratic senators, Manchin and Cinema, made it absolutely clear they would not vote for the. They would. This would not happen. It was not going to happen. It was not going to happen. And then finally, they divvied it up again. They finally did let it go through, right? And it was last month, and they finally let it go. Let the infrastructure bill go through. I. It is time for us to take a victory lap. That's why I'm gleeful. That is why I'm gleeful. And to and to do that, and not to monologize excessively, but to do that, I am going to default to Randy Travis's famous first hit from 1984, I believe. Um, I told you so. Okay? Imagine this in the voice of Joe Biden singing to Joe Manchin or possibly to Mitch McConnell. If I told you that I realize you're all I ever wanted and it's killing me to be so far away, would you tell me that you love me too and would we cry together? Or would you simply laugh at me and say, I told you so. Oh, I told you so. We told you so. Told you it wasn't going to happen. There wouldn't be a bill. We had fights and interesting conflicts with friends on the right who assumed that Democrats wouldn't be crazy and would somehow come up with a way of getting this through. But we told you so. And Noah, you have had group chats and text exchanges and various things with other of our friends on the right. And I believe you were a lone voice saying this this is not going to happen. Can you please fill us in? There were more than a couple of occasions. By the way, that was beautiful. Well, oh, thank you. Gorgeous thank rendition. You. Thank the, you. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I felt many times I felt like I was being too Pollyannish because a conventional understanding of politics and legislative affairs by which I means I'm no expert in, but nevertheless, I've been watching this for the better part of 20 years. So I have some apprehension of how this thing works. <clears throat> and when you started to see this thing crumble, first of all, the idea alone was madness. The very conception of this notion that you could cram 40 years of progressive 
desiderata into one moonshot of a bill, and it wouldn't be anything other than a miracle if it got passed, was itself a conception of American politics that was rooted in a really basic understanding of how legislative affairs work in Washington. But maybe we suspended the rules here. Maybe, maybe everything had changed, right? Well, then by June, late June, John, as you mentioned, um, Democrats lost a, a really serious messaging war around this thing when they conceded that it was an infrastructure. They've been trying to make this thing into an infrastructure bill. And by carving out the actual stuff that was infrastructure, what everybody understands when they say the word infrastructure, what it means, that was a concession to reality that would only beget more concessions to reality. And in the interim, you had you know, this notion of taxing hypothetical income that hadn't yet been earned to pay for this sort of thing. Um, you had, you know, first of all, the, the idea that the, this bill didn't even have a name, the second bill, the, the, the human infrastructure bill, as it was called briefly, and the social infrastructure bill, it was called briefly. And then they settled on Build Back Better way late in the game. But for most of its iteration, most of its lifetime, this iteration of this, uh, this bill, it was known by how much it would cost. It was referred to as, by shorthand, the $3.5 trillion bill. And it could no longer be called that after it got kind of shaved down and then re reassembled in the house and it went through all these iterations, but it was on life support by the summer. And just noticing that was, was deemed in a lot of circles by democratic side, you know, a, a, a lack of sufficient zeal for the cause, first of all, and on the right side, you know, just too, too, too uh, sunny, too sanguine. Um, and it just it's vindicating to know that the laws of political physics have not been repealed. Well, there's to that point, which I think is really important there. The other thing that was uh, heartening to see as this thing dies is that the tactics of intimidation and harassment that were deployed, particularly against uh, Mansion and Cinema, by activist groups, not just online, which I'm sure they're all used to when, when these sorts of large pieces of legislation are being debated, but in person, you know, chased into bathrooms, harassed as, as he came off his houseboat and, you know, F, uh, horrible words <clears throat> screamed at him, excuse me, uh, for Manchin as he, as he walked down the street. That didn't work. It did their print. They held fast to their principles. They didn't sway. This is exactly the role of a senator in our system. They are not supposed to be as as open to the winds of public opinion. They're supposed to be, you know, they're there for a longer term. They're supposed to be serving the interests of their entire state, which both of these holdouts on this bill did. And I and I'm heartened to see that the kind of really uh, despicable harassment that, that these two senators received didn't work in the end. It did not change their minds. So let's talk about um, the presumption on the right, just because I'm amused by it, really, because how much more can we really say about the substantive nature of the bill? But the sort of the, the assumption of, 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 of politically sophisticated, less ideological and more practical people on the right, that it was inevitable that some version of the Build Back Better bill would pass because it would be crazy for Democrats, including Manchin, to let it die. That's not the way it works. They'll come up with something. There'll be a face-saving something. It's going to happen. And I think that this uh, refusal or th this, this belief that behind the scenes, Democrats are much more rational and Machiavellian and, you know, uh, 
constructivist when it comes to this stuff. They want to get things done. They want to score wins. That they a half a loaf is better than none. Um, that is a misestimation of the nature of American politics at well, present. To, you know, to that point, you know what else didn't work throughout this process was the sympathetic media cheerleading uh, at every phase that there was a supposed little mini triumph, right? Uh, so we have a framework or, uh, you know, uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi's masterly uh, uh, getting it uh, passed in the House. You know, these were supposed to be these 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 moments that were sort of supposed to be seen along this timeline as leading to the inevitable. Um, that's a very healthy thing that that did not work. Right. Um, and I, even though I think a lot of it uh, was behind um, some of the concern uh, on the right. Uh, of our friends who who sort of began to kind of believe the the PR on this thing a little bit, but you know that's that's interesting because that that's a that's a that's a way that uh, the political system was trying to to concede to previous political realities. And other times, at other in other places, yeah, the passage of a framework would be step one on the way to passing a bill, or the House passing the bill would be an inevitable step toward its passage because why would the house pass a bill that was going to die in the senate and then have everybody basically on the hook for having voted for something that wasn't going to go anywhere that could have terrible political consequences as it did in 94 for people in the house who voted on on clinton care um so that was like, okay, if this is normal times, or this is the times that we grew up in and learned about in political science, and then, you know, when we were young reporters, we learned about, these would all be steps on the inevitable way station to a bill signing on Joe Biden's desk. But these are these are not normal times, or we should say that normality now is defined in a different way. Well, I don't, I, I don't, I wouldn't, I would dispute that, actually, because I don't think this was normal at all, <clears throat> because it was the framework was designed to paper over the distinctions between various camps in the Democratic Party that were irreconcilable and were irreconcilable at the time of the framework, which is why we should assuage conservatives who are still, oh, you know, 2022, you know, the Obamacare passed in 2010. The Democrats don't stop legislating just because it's a midterm election year. This thing could totally pass and the media cheerleading is not going to stop. Uh, so the apprehension will continue. But the obstacles before this thing coming becoming a, a law are still there and are still immovable. You can't reconcile the designs of this bill, what it does, what it wants to do, what it wants to spend with the revenue generators. That's the problem. That has always been the problem. And it's not going to go away. If you if you think Democrats are going to pass a bill in 2022 that represents a gigantic tax break for billionaires on the East Coast. You're out of your mind. And if they strip that from the bill, it's not paid for in any functional, any semblance of a, an idea of how you pay for this thing, which isn't going to get Manchin and Cinema to jump off. And maybe Maggie Hass and half a dozen other legislators who are going to find themselves in the crosshairs next year. These obstacles will be there in 2022, no matter what. And now we're going to spend the next two weeks talking about Yet another legislative debacle that can't get 60 votes in the Senate. I am the, the idea here that these conditions the are going to resolve rights. themselves. That's the voting oh, rights. Bill. Yeah. Now we're calling just we just what are we calling it now? Yeah, well, it's the voting it? rights bill 
because that sounds really nice. And if you if you don't the like federalization rights, of election, if you don't like voting rights, you're a fascist. That's right. basically the idea behind naming this bill, which is SB one, which is a federal takeover of elections, a court packing bill. It is un, unpassable. It can't get 60 votes in the Senate. And we're moving on to that after having just spent three months trying to force a bill through the Senate that couldn't get 50 votes. You know what was interesting about about the the Build Back Better discussion is that by the end of it, it and this is I, I agree with you, Noah. I think even if they keep claiming they're going to revive this thing in 2022. Uh, it, it won't work. And that's because people actually really cared about the cost this time around. It wasn't like a you know defense reauthorization spending bill where people are like, ah, whatever, let's throw some money at the military. We don't care about the details. They were, they were very focused on the details in part because they're worried about their taxes rising at a time when all their other bills have already been rising because of inflation. And the idea that these things are were, were sold to them as an emergency, but the intention was clearly to make them permanent down the line, right? So if you that kept coming up in, in the the very the very end of all these debates, like, how are you going to pay for this? Oh, we have all these ways to pay for it. We're tax the rich, blah, blah, blah. But in the end, it wouldn't be enough, even if that worked for the, what, three to five years they were projecting, which it did not, even if that worked, if they decided at the end to make it permanent, which is the goal of every major federal spending project that's ever proposed as, as temporary, it, it largely becomes permanent, there was no way to pay for it going forward. And I think Americans thought too much, like uh, we just too much spending. One of the things about a successful political organization, which the Biden administration is not, is that it's fleet of foot and it recognizes changes in realities and can switch gears or change courses as necessary. And part of the uh, political dynamic of an administration is that it has all these people in it and they want to plan. They want to do plans and they want to have grand meetings and they want to have uh, in, uh, you know, interagency setups in which they come up with cross cross uh, cabinet department proposals and so they set up these things right the great joke is the phase infrastructure week okay next in next thursday or two weeks from monday we're going to start infrastructure week so biden will give a speech on infrastructure then the secretary of commerce will meet with the secretary of transportation to do the infrastructure and on Monday night, CNN will have a special on infrastructure America's challenge. On Tuesday, there will be a debate in the House Ways and Means Committee over spending on infrastructure. Wednesday, Biden will tour, um, you know, a, 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 a Amtrak uh, to show the need for infrastructure. And then someone will go visit a terrible bridge. It's five days of like wall to wall coverage in America. It's infrastructure week. And it never happens. You know why? Because things happen that capture their attention because you cannot manage the world according to the to a to a schedule that does not take account of the fact that things beyond your control happen or things that you did will then have peculiar ancillary consequences that mean that it would look ridiculous for people for you to have infrastructure week and that is exactly what happened with this bill theoretically having a big social spending program when you have democrats who win the white house and they have all this pent-up energy and people claim that the polling shows that all the provisions of the bill including about child care and this and that are wildly popular then you can really go to it and you can have in you can have your version of build back better week or build back better month and you know what happens? Inflation happens. Supply chain problems happen. The Delta variant happens. The Omicron variant happens. And you do something in Afghanistan that sets your administration back in terms of minimal competence and moral 
strength by several years. And suddenly, what looked really good in March, I am going to be LBJ and JFK, starts looking preposterous in September and October when you're Biden and you can barely keep your head over uh, above water dealing with the onrush of constant bad news about which you have no reasonable answers. Inflation, of course, being the biggest one. But there was also a, a there were also misguided priorities at work here. I think what what you're describing is absolutely right, John. But they they didn't even need to be that nimble to to start out of the gate, and they could have done a version of some sort of week. But it should have been about the border, or it should have been about COVID, and it should have been a coordinated campaign that was showing here's what we're doing to solve this massive problem that Americans are really up, worried about. Both of those things have been on American voters' minds uh, even before the inflation spike started, and they could have done that. I mean, they certainly would have had a perfectly enthusiastic handmaiden in the mainstream media. They could go to the border. They could talk about how terrible Trump's policies were, interview all these people, talk about what they were doing. They didn't even manage to do that. It's like they came in and said, we're in charge. We know what's best for this country. We're not going to listen to what the actual American voter is concerned about right now. We know better. And that hubris, I think, in addition to the, to the absolute debacle in Afghanistan, means people don't trust that they do know what's best for this country. And they're getting a lot of pushback on that. But I would have loved to have seen them attempt to do something at the border. That's a crisis that neither Republicans nor Democrats seem able to manage. But Noah, well, that wouldn't be fun. Abe, that wouldn't be fun. You know, it would be fun. Six trillion dollars in new spending. What, it, what Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders want is in their dotage. They want us. They want to be Scrooge McDuck swimming in money in the swimming pool. That's what they want. This is all. This is what they came to Congress for. This is why they're senators. This is everything that they ever wanted. And they had this dream delusion based on the very peculiar results of the Georgia runoffs that suddenly it was Scrooge McDuck fill the pool with money and go swimming at time. I mean, that's interesting because what I was about to say is that we're starting to see, I think, the very first indications, shockingly, this late into 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 Biden's being in the White House, the very first indications of sort of the acknowledgement of reality um, with with the shelving of Build Back Better, the the Federal Reserve Federal Reserve's take on inflation, um, that fantasy land is slowly beginning to kind of get dimmer. Um, we, we had been saying up until this point, don't they see, do they see what people are saying? Do they, do they, do they see what people care about? Are they aware of how the, what, what, what the results of any of these things? Maybe, I mean, maybe they're starting to be. When Obama became president and there he was, and he won this, landslide and you know he was the world historic figure and all of that and um he didn't care about foreign policy right he really he didn't care he had his agenda items right he had health care he had even though he said he didn't he had gay marriage on his mind he had all cut the re the re organization of the American individual's relation to the government and vice versa. But he really didn't care about foreign policy. And guess what he spent 60 to 70% of his presidency on foreign policy. Guess what he decided was going to be his epical, his, his, his dance out of the seats and his shooting for the fences thing, the Iran nuclear deal. Why is this important? Because 
Democrats and liberals are tempted by the idea that they, when they get in charge, they have a printing press. This is, they don't really, because that's not the way American monetary, the American monetary system works, but it's the way liberal politics works or leftist or leftist populist politics works all over the globe. It's time for them to shower money down on people. That's why they're there. That's the whole purpose of this. It's like, if you buy a chocolate factory, you want to eat the chocolate. You don't just want to sell the chocolate and you want to give the chocolates. That's the fun. It's the fun of government. You know, what's not fun. COVID, you know, it's not fun. The border, you know, what's, you know, it's been an incredible accomplishment coming up with an innovative policy on the border, an issue that makes Democrats both uncomfortable and about which their, their, their own, you know, sort of most hysterical constituencies are actual unambiguous contributors to the problem rather than authors of a solution to the problem. You know what's not fun? Wrestling the CDC and the FDA and NIH and Fauci and and uh, Francis Collins and uh, these lunatic epidemiologists all over the country and idiot public health officials who have communications degrees from BU and Brandeis like Barbara Ferrer of L.A. County and herding them together and saying, we are going to speak in one voice about how we need to do X to get people to get vaccinated, and we are not going to do Y to shut the economy down and make schooling impossible. That's not fun. It's the opposite of fun. It's grueling, hard, unpleasant work, and they're in it for the fun. That's the way I look at it. They think government is fun. They get to tell people what to do. They get to spend money that they don't have. That's somebody else's money. They can structure it in their own fantasies that they're taking it from rich people and giving it to poor people. And it doesn't implicate them. And Biden came into office and there was nothing fun to be done. Really? There really wasn't. There was the border. There was COVID. There was there was. No, they're not true. They did something really fun right in the very beginning. Well, that's true. Yes. Say just pass another COVID relief bill that literally gave people money. And that was the intention of this bill. I like your theory because it's simple. We, and by we, I mean the people in the political commentary community have a tendency to overcomplicate things. And I think it's, it's narcissistic and solipsistic. It shows, demonstrates our sophistication. Uh, but it's a really simple thing to say that the public didn't like the fact that we spent $6 trillion in the space of 18 months. And the Biden administration came into office pretending like the four trillion that it had that we had spent over the course of a year of a crisis didn't exist. So they spent another one point nine trillion, most of which was in the form of fourteen hundred dollar checks, which Donald Trump actually negotiated for himself when he was having his little post-election tantrum, which is a weird detail of how we got to that place. Um, but we had an NPR Marist poll that came out last week that shows that a lot of the people who got that money aren't aware they got that money. And very few of the people who are aware they got that money believed it helped them a lot. Well, and the, the most Democratic- most of them don't believe that helped them very much at all. The progressive left has one big idea: give people money, and when it doesn't manifest in profound outpourings of gratitude, and and it actually just becomes a big inflation driver, that's not very fun either. And it goes to the point that the why this bill failed, which is because they were promoting it based on its price tag, $3.5 trillion. After having already spent $6 trillion, they talked about it like it was a bill, like it was a tab that you had to pay. And people treated it like it was a bill that they had to pay. 
But this is an important point, the idea that I hadn't really thought about this before until you said it, Noah, but the idea that the Biden administration came in acting as if there hadn't already been a lot of relief given to the American people. And in fact, they're, they're some of their largest constituent groups and activist groups, the teachers unions, the, the uh, just basically the unionized workforce that help elect him. They also acted as if they hadn't received, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in relief. And, and you can see that that was, again, where the to, to Abe's point about do you not see reality there? there you know, all the, the media writing all these articles about, oh, teachers are so burned out. There's not enough money for what they want to do. And then Americans going, but but the government like sent all this money to the schools and the teachers were doing everything remotely for a year. Like, how can they be burned out? We were doing their job half the time as parents. That that disconnect between people's actual experience on the ground and what they're being told by their government is being done for them is is has been disconcerting. But I think that's absolutely right. It was a political strategy that the Democrats pursued that has backfired on them. Abe, I mean, I think. There's one uh, missing detail from both of your brilliant perorations there, which is it's not just that even mine. I mean, it's not just that uh, Democrats want to shower money on people. Right. It is that they want to shower on money on people, but the money has to go through um, a funnel or a screen. And as it goes through enormous numbers of groups that support them get to pluck dollars as they're falling down through the screen and enrich themselves along the way. Um, bureaucracies, intermediary groups, unions, teachers unions, uh, the whole structure of the child care provision of the Build Back Better Act um, is a multi-billion, even trillion dollar giveaway to a an entirely new industry that would be aborned by federal support with all of these federally mandated. They thought that was rules. a selling point. Right. Because people want childcare. Right. But they want childcare from the church down the block. They don't want an a, a they child want the freedom to choose the form of childcare. They don't want them, right. they don't want to be told right. where they should right. stay put their kids every day. And what would have happened here would have been a version of what is seems to be happening in the cannabis industry, which is that you liberalize, you know, you, you liberalize cannabis laws. And what happens is an entire superstructure of an industry is formed. That is what would happen with childcare. We would have 2000 childcare centers opening up in malls and various places, all of which would have to follow draconian federal regulatory uh, procedures that would um, eat up all the all the money that was being spent and and end up costing the people who are supposedly getting free childcare extra money because of course there's never enough money for stuff like that so that uh, while throttling for, religious institutions out of existence because you can no longer according to this bill no longer subsidize <clears throat> religious or sectarian institutions that provide childcare. Right. So in the end, what we have here is not just, wow, it's great to rain money down in a funny way. That is what like Peronist populism was and does. Right. It's like, OK, I'm making bread cheap, you know, or come come to come to the government building and we'll hand you money. Right. And then you'll like us. It is. We will we authorize one billion dollars for this and uh, we will instantly require compliance with this official and that official and the other official. And you'll obey these OSHA rules and this regulation. So you have to hire a bunch of other people. And then 
you'll have to produce monthly reports on how you're spending. So you'll have to hire accountants and then you'll have to do this and you'll have to do that. And by the end, every single institution has 40 employees because they've decided to try to take this federal largesse, which then you have 40 people eating at the trough of free childcare which is no longer about providing free childcare to American citizens. It is about feeding a new industry that is entirely supported by the federal government, like the public school or, you know, or governments like the, like the public education industry. And, and people uh, are getting wise <laughs> to the problems there too. And you know what else people are getting wise to? They're getting wise to the need for doing new things in relation to human resources at their businesses. Because when running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, you know, labor regulations, uh, what what meal and break requirements do you have to apply to employ, provide employees? Uh, do I have to accommodate an employee who can't do their job? What do I have to do to terminate an employee properly? How do I know if I have to follow any new employment law changes? It's the finding somebody who can answer these questions can cost you $70,000 a year in a salary. Bambi spelled B-A-M-B-E was created specifically for small business to provide a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month with Bambi. You can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, Bambi customizes your policies to fit your business and helps you manage your employees day-to-day all for just $99 a month, month to month. No hidden fees. Cancel anytime you didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. So go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. And Noah, your sheets, your favorite sheets, those Bolin brand sheets. It is time. It is Christmas time. It is time to go with this company started by husband and wife team, Scott and Missy Tan, and founded to create a new standard in betting by doing things the right way, not the easy way. That's Bolin Branch. Its signature hem sheets are their all-time bestseller, beloved for so many reasons, like how they get softer with every single wash. Buttery, soft, lightweight, made with 100% organic cotton weave that feels incredible in all seasons, comes in a wide range of colors and sizes, from twin up to California king, completely toxin-free, fair trade certified, uh, and comes in beautiful packaging. Beautiful, beautiful holiday packaging. If you order by the 19th of December, If you can do that, you will get guaranteed delivery by Christmas. So treat yourself and your loved ones to the new standard in bedding from Bolin Branch. Order by 1219. Shop the holiday semi-annual sale at BolinBranch.com. See site for details. Exclusions may apply. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. All right, so uh, we've taken our victory lap. We've made fun of uh, we've made fun of everything, and it's uh, everything is uh, that's you know so. Um, but we have th- uh, three more years of this presidency now, uh, and I guess you know uh, there's nowhere to go but up. Really? Oh no, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> there's plenty of bottom left to plumb. We haven't even begun to <laughs> spelunk the basement. Um, 
we are the 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 signature issue of our time is covid <laughs> and the public health apparatus and the politicians who are responsive to it are uh, working themselves up into a froth that will result in and is resulting in a return of the very draconian measures, canceling events, locking down students, closing schools. They're already preparing the, the runway for it um, that we imposed on the American public when there were no pharmaceutical interventions available for this thing. Those conditions of 2020 do not apply, but the measures that we resorted to without any other alternative as a result of the fact that we had no other alternative are being reimposed now for reasons I can't explain save a psychological disposition that prefers it to the status quo ante. And we have a lot of evidence to suggest that a lot of people don't like that and are more energized to say no to it than the people who passively accept it there's not a lot of enthusiasm for it. There's passive acceptance of it and a grudging understanding that it's necessary, but there's not a lot of enthusiasm for it. There's a ton of enthusiasm against it. And it's coming again in 2022. And whether or not inflation, by the way, is also a big driver of this sentiment. And that's going to become a much bigger issue in 2022 because the Fed is saying we're going to tighten. It's coming. Interest rates are going up. We have no choice. The British already did this. The Turkish already, Turks already did this. Um, so we're going to get an interest rate hike. Um, money's going to get more expensive. And these conditions are necessary, perhaps, grudgingly acceptable, perhaps, to a certain cohort. But it will energize a lot of people against the status quo in ways Democrats don't seem to really want to take, a, take to envision. It's not hard to envision. They just don't want to. And there is there. I, I agree with you, Noah. And I think there's a there's a broader swath of people now parents definitely among them who as they see this kind of overreaction happening in real time are saying well wait a minute because we do we don't just have you know scientific proof of the usefulness of vaccination and these these other therapeutics coming down the, the pipeline like the pills and whatnot but we have very horrifying evidence of the mental health toll and learning loss that was suffered by students, for example, when they were because of school closures. We have the very clear economic challenges to families who have to watch their young children at home and can't go into their jobs or lose their jobs as a result of these, these you know, completely inconsistent lockdown policies. So I think there, there are a lot of people who will just say enough, especially because as it presents, and this is a very lucky fact, it still remains, Omicron in particular, very mild and um, not life-threatening condition, particularly for children. But I, I agree with you. I'm seeing it in my very blue public school district, the freakouts, the testing that they've canceled wrestling meets for one of my kids. They all of the schools, not just the public ones, the private ones here in DC too, because I'm in a COVID freakout zone. They're doing it already. And they're already talking about, well, maybe we should have virtual schooling for a few weeks in January till this thing blows over. And a lot of parents who I think were incredibly uh, passive about accepting that those restrictions before are saying, uh-uh, no way, no way. I think, I, and, I, and I think a lot of what's feeding that is that those very parents and the people who uh, previously were sort of enthused about lockdown measures and things like that, they are, of course, among the the the, the, the most um, compliant of the vaccinated. And er so is everyone in their circle. So they've been living a long time now without seeing any hospitalizations among any people they know. So when they hear about 
how uh, deadly and dangerous everything is and how we're not over this hump and how a, a tidal wave is coming, it can't, it has to dawn on them that no one they know is being hospitalized, no one they know is dying anymore. Um, so they, they are in a different position than they were. What they know, because I think we've all had this experience, what they know is their friend knows somebody who got a breakthrough case. Their friend is triple vaxxed and got Omicron. They, somebody in their office, boy, vaxxed, got Omicron. But then what? What's the second step? They have Omicron. Maybe they have Omicron or they tested positive for COVID, whatever. Are they going to the hospital? Do they need oxygen? Is there actually a monoclonal antibody treatment for them? Or are they sick with something and then they get better? We have now completely erased the distinction between the latter and the former. So, so the, the very people that the, that the most sort of intrusive propositions and policies are meant to cater to are the ones who have the most reason to reject them at this point. And right. as Christine is saying, and I've noticed this too, the stigma around questioning any of this because you're giving license to terrible people and you're basically contributing to the deaths of thousands. You know, all that emotional blackmail that we were all subject to last year is melting away. No longer is it unacceptable to say this sort of thing in mixed company. And that should really scare people who think that this is the sort of thing that you can muscle through because everybody will be afraid to object to it in public. It's not that it's not 2020 anymore. Well, I mean, I think the point that Christine makes about the, 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 the terrible, tragic, you know, mental health costs and all of that back in 2020, there didn't really seem to be a lot of trade-off discussion because there was this disease. It was fatal. It had a relatively small footprint, right? I mean, it was like small numbers of people got it overall. You know, I mean, in the end, it's like 10% of the population, according to testing, has tested positive for COVID in the United States. And like, I don't know what the, and then a small number of them, you know, 40 million got it, 800,000 have died, something like that. I mean, it's so you, there's a relatively small chance that you'll get it and a very relatively small chance that you'll die from it. And a smaller chance still that you'll get sick from it. But there was no, tr but the trade-off was there's no treatment. There's not, there's nothing you can do about this. It'll hit you and then it'll hit you and you'll just ride the storm. Maybe it'll kill you. Maybe it won't. Maybe your case will be gentle. Maybe it'll start involving all sorts of other things. Maybe you have, you know, uh, comorbidities that will make it really terrible. And there's nothing that we can do. And we don't really understand its etiology or how dangerous it is. And so this is a triage situation. We're in an emergency. We have to put the fire out in the building. And if that means that the building is a school and the school has to be soaked through to its bones and therefore is unusable until later, so be it. That's the kind of hard choices that you have to make. That was 2020. 2021, the vaccines come in and the entire structure, superstructure of the way that the public health authorities think about this is in exactly the same frame. The vaccines avail nothing except to become a thing in and of themselves right? A, a measure of compliance with their regime. 
you should do it. It's going to make you better. It really is. Go get vaccinated. Go get double vaccinated. It's going to make you better. Uh, you know what? Now go get triple vaccinated. That's going to, while you're waiting, double mask. While you're waiting, even though you're vaccinated, not only wear one mask, but wear two. Because why not? And maybe it'll help. Two masks. That's what I do. And then, but now, as, as Christine says, now people are going to know there's the pill. People are going to know that they can get triple boosted and all of that. And they will not be able, whoever they is, to shut off the conversation about the trade-offs. Once it was a moral necessity to not have a conversation about the trade-offs. It is now a moral necessity to have a conversation about the trade-offs. And the denial of the moral conversation about the trade-offs, which the Biden administration is going to try to do, and which Fauci is going to try to do, and all of that, will again contribute to this, there is no bottom that Noah is talking about in terms of the political consequences of this for the people who do not shift gears, who do not and, say, okay, who are not Jared Polis and say, okay, genug, enough, we, that's it. But that's the missed opportunity for the Biden administration. And there were occasionally signals that he was thinking about doing some of that. Remember when he removed the mask and said, if you get the shot, no more masks like that. We were all like, good for him. That's exactly right. And then they quickly, you know, retrenched him, slapped slap the mask on. Although I will note, Biden is the worst ambassador for masks, masking. He's completely inconsistent. He'll wear it from a distance and then rip it off and cough in his arm and into his hand while talking to the media. It's of course, they never say a thing. They just pretend it's not happening. But that is where leadership matters. And that's, this is to go to, to Noah's very cynical, but I think a correct point that we haven't reached bottom. The other discussion already happening is about whether he will run in 2024 and whether he's what happens if he doesn't run, who will also run. And John, I know you believe he's he's gonna he's gonna run, but there there have been a lot there's been a lot more chatter on the Democratic side of the aisle about this than one would expect. Um, and you know, our friend Brett Stevens wrote an interesting column the other day in the Times, kind of taking this challenge head on, which I which I thought made some very good points about it. But politically, he's refusing to lead on COVID, and leadership does require sometimes scolding people who might want to stay cowering in their houses all day with triple masking and saying, okay, we're, we have to leave you behind. You may, you may continue to choose to cower, but the country has to move on and here are the ways we're doing that. If the laws of political physics have not been repealed, as the implosion of the Build Back Better bill suggests, Joe Biden will seek re-election in 2024, because if he does not, centrifugal force will send this party reeling into all corners of the universe because there is no successor there's no acceptable successor and a fight oh. over a fight over a one term the the spoils of a one-term presidency who's every everybody in his orbit demand depends on him being in that seat the notion that he would just abdicate and send this party into a, a, an internecine squabble that has no prospects of real success real quick success from anybody to reunite the party that suggests lunacy is afoot. And unless everybody's gone crazy, I don't think they have, they'll prop him up on his horse like El Seed and ride him into battle, whether he's cognizant or not. I have a rival, potential rival or successor for him in 2024. Senator Elizabeth Warren. Senator Elizabeth Warren has now decided that she is going to take up the mantle of packing the Supreme Court. It's going to be the key issue of our time. It is necessary to do so in order to create the conditions under which 
our political system can now function better. And when with the, uh, I guess, imminent release of the study of the court, uh, 36 members of a panel unable to come up with a conclusion on what should be done, um, Warren has now basically said she is going to champion this. And she, you know, she'll spring chicken. She'll be 75. I mean, that's nothing now. That's she's like, a young, that's like, and she's a young 75. Yeah, but that's like Biden's being 42. You know, it used to be that, you know, we had young Democratic presidents who were 42. You know, it's like Clinton and Obama. Now being young is like being 86 would be a young presidential candidate for the Democratic Party. So, because you know, in 2020, her problem was that she just didn't pander to fringe progressive ideas enough. She just wasn't, she didn't but, embrace the craziest, fringiest left-wing idea of the moment frequently enough in 2022 to catch, 2020 to catch fire. Let's try She again. always had those two cents she was rubbing together to create magic money for pro social spending. I remember that from her. See, campaign. I have this insane comic vision that, uh, so she will run and she will talk about packing the court. And then because Donald Trump imports everything crazy from the left, he will be running against her against her and say, you know, Pocahontas wants to pack the court. I don't know. I'd say maybe we should do it. What do you think? Should I pack the court? <laughs> and then that will, of course, that's... and then that will become a, a, a right wing issue. Why not? Yeah. Good. Why not? Stranger things have happened. Let's face it. And with that, we will say goodbye until tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noah. I'm John Paul Horitz. Keep the candle burning. And we told you so. <laughs>